Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and welcome. I'm Rebecca Ford. I'm the Head of Collaboration and Learning Design here at the RSA, and I'm really excited to be hosting today's RSA online event. So today I'll have the chance to talk to Adam Kahane about his brilliant work, and in particular, his new book, Facilitating Breakthrough how to remove obstacles, bridge differences, and move forward together. I'm going to briefly introduce Adam, and then I will hand over to him to give us a flavour of what's in the book. And then after that, we'll have a discussion to unpack it in more detail. So Adam is a facilitation expert and director of Rios Partners, an international social enterprise that designs and facilitates processes to enable groups and communities to address important and intractable challenges together. Adam has worked across more than 50 countries with a huge variety of groups. So that spans politicians, activists, trade unionists, UN officials, artists, clergy, and many more. And this work has informed several fantastic books that have been really influential in shaping how we think about facilitation and working together through complexity. Adam's latest book, Facilitating Breakthrough, builds on this body of work with a really powerful and practical framework for how transformative facilitation can help us to work through our biggest challenges together and enable real breakthrough. If those of you watching along would like to join the conversation about this event on Twitter, then you're more than welcome to do so using the hashtag RSA Breakthrough or in our YouTube chat. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Your work has been really influential for lots of us in the RSA community and how we approach collaboration. We've not met before today, but um, I was just saying to you a minute ago, on a personal note, the theory and practice that you've shared through your work over the years has been really formative in shaping my own understanding and applied practice of, of collaboration and as a facilitator within complex collaboration. So I'm very much looking forward to getting uh, stuck in and talking with you about this, but perhaps you could first begin by giving us an overview of your thinking in facilitating breakthrough. Well, thanks, Rebecca, very much for the warm welcome. Um, And as I said, when we were talking a minute ago, I have very warm memories of the times I've been to and spoken at the RSA. So this online um, conversation, uh, I'm very happy about. So thank you. Uh, Yes, let me uh, give a bit of an overview and then we can go into your, your questions or your, your challenges or whatever, whatever you have. Um, And I thought I would try to uh, explain why I wrote the book and and give an overview of what's in the book. I guess the best way to explain it would be to say that uh, I've been facilitating groups for uh, more than 30 years, uh, starting off actually when I worked uh, in London at Shell facilitating different groups of shell people. Um, But it wasn't until four years ago, until 2017, that I thought I saw what this was really all about. Uh, And uh, and my explanation of that is is what's in the book. 
Um, I got started in the kind of facilitation I do now uh, while I was still a Shell employee uh, in 1991 when I was uh, loaned to a group uh, in South Africa uh, during the transition from apartheid to democracy, a group that became known as the Montfleur Scenario Team. And that was my first experience working with what we now call a multi-stakeholder uh, team trying to make a difference in their situation. This was a, a team of politicians and activists and business people and community leaders and trade unionists from all parts of South Africa. And anyway, that's how I ended up leaving London and leaving Shell and starting to work full-time first in South Africa and now everywhere in the world, um, uh, facilitating highly diverse groups of actors that are trying to make progress on their most uh, important and, and difficult uh, challenges. And the, uh, the particular uh, process that uh, inspired me to begin to write this book uh, took place in Colombia in November, or started in was in Colombia and started in November 2017. I worked a lot in Colombia, off and on uh, since uh, 1996, but in uh, 2016, uh, the the situation and the conflict in Colombia moved into another uh, stage. Wouldn't say things got resolved, but they moved to another stage when uh, Juan Manuel Santos, who I had worked with in 1996 and um, was now president of Colombia, uh, signed the peace accords ending the 52-year civil war with the FARC. Um, and so, uh, yeah, now things needed to be worked on. There were still lots of things to be worked on, but they need to be worked on in a different way. And in November 2017, my colleagues and, our, and I started a process uh, in a uh, very conflict-ridden uh, part of the world. It's called the North Cauca Valley uh, near Cali, which was a group of people who were trying to work together. Okay, now that the peace accords have been signed, how are we going to... Uh, yeah, rebuild our region and uh, work out the issues amongst us and deal with economic and social development. It's an area that has a large population of indigenous people and Afro-descendant Colombians and um, farmers and, uh, and uh, yeah, all the uh, uh, peasants and, and all uh, the groups in that area. And so, uh, in November 2017, I went to Colombia to facilitate the first workshop of this group, uh, uh, which included people who had literally been shooting at each other a few years before, including uh, uh, the former FARC guerrillas and uh, landowners, etc. And uh, we did a workshop uh, with the normal sort of thing facilitators do, which is uh, a group meets for the first time and they, they introduce, everybody introduces themselves and uh, they use different activities to try to talk about 
well, how do we see the current situation and what do we think the real issues are and how do we think we can deal with it? Activities from talking in plenary in a circle to uh, building models of the current reality with Lego blocks to writing on flip charts and small groups and plenary to, to, um, to uh, having meals together and going for walks together and storytelling. And I, um, I was doing uh, what I always do, what I've learned to do over the years. Um, uh, and it was, it was going quite well. It was a difficult. This is a group that had very low trust and very little common language for understanding what had gone on or what was going on or what needed to go on, but it was progressing quite well. And uh, at the end of the first day, uh, one of the participants, uh, uh, a man I'd met before, his name is Francisco Duru. He's quite a famous peacemaker in Colombia. He'd been involved in very difficult negotiations during the Civil War. He had been the head of the Jesuits in Colombia. He had just the week before been appointed the head of the Colombian Truth Commission. And he'd come to this local workshop because he was interested in the methodology and thought that maybe he could do something he could use in the, work, the very difficult work that he was about to begin uh, with the Truth Commission. And at the end of this first day of the workshop, he comes running up to me very excited. Uh, and he says, Adam, I, I, I see what you're doing. And I, I said, well, uh, Francisco, what, what am I doing? He said, you're removing the obstacles to the expression of the mystery. So uh, Francisco Duru is somebody I respect enormously uh, for his uh, commitment and his intelligence and his sensitivity. And so I was really interested in trying to understand what he meant because I was sure he was saying something important. Uh, but it's a pretty, I found it a pretty hard sentence to understand removing the obstacles to the expression of the mystery. Uh, you know, I think the mystery means something in Catholic thought about the expression of God, but I talked to him about it for several hours. I was no wiser. I knew it wasn't a mystery like an Agatha Christa mystery that you solve, but something, something that you, you could know about, but not necessarily fully understand. So anyway, this experience in Colombia and this, uh, um, yeah, hint that I got from, from his Francisco Duru was the beginning of trying to understand in a completely different way what is this facilitation all about. And uh, that's, uh, that was the day I started to write this book. And, uh, and yeah, to make a very long and winding uh, story short, what I came to understand is that everything we do as facilitators uh, involves enabling three things, at least three things, maybe there's others, but the basic things are enabling everybody to contribute, or so enabling contribution, which means having all the actors in the room, enabling them all to speak uh, uh, how they see things, from their perspective, uh, what they have been doing, what they want to do. So that's contribution, enabling connection, which in a polarized and fragmented and divided situation is very important, whether that's working together or eating together or walking together or drinking together. Um, 
and to do both connection and contribution uh, equitably so that nobody is forcing their will on others. And another way to say um, contribution, connection, and equity is uh, power, love, and justice. So um, this is what I have tried to explain in the book is, is this idea that facilitation at its essence is about enabling um, the expression. The expression of the mystery is enabling or removing the obstacles to the expression of power, love, and justice. So let me just say a few more words about, about this uh, now and no longer about the Colombian example, uh, but a, a, a little bit more about the larger context of this. And then I'm really super interested in your uh, uh, comments and questions, Rebecca. So if I, if I try to zoom out now, not uh, from this specific Colombian case to the work that I've been doing for the past 30 years, it's all about how to make progress on complex problematic situations. And when we talk about a situation being complex, there's at least three aspects of that. It's dynamically complex, meaning cause and effect are far apart in space and time. And the only way to make progress on situations which are dynamically complex is by looking at the system as a whole. So working systemically. Secondly, they're generally complex, which means that solutions of the past won't necessarily work in the future. So we can't just apply previous best practice. We have to experiment our way forward. We need an experimental process. And most uh, pointedly, it means socially complex, which is that different actors have different needs and understandings and backgrounds and interests. And so we can't uh, tell people what to do. It just doesn't work. We need to work collaboratively. Uh, and so the bottom line of that is that the the default way of working on complex problematic situations, which is some people with authority or power or money or guns try to force things to be the way they want them to be, don't work. It results in these situations getting polarized and fragmented and stuck, whether it's in extreme situations uh, like, uh, like Colombia or the more common situations we see all over the world, whether it's in Canada or the UK uh, or the US or globally on climate change. Um, so my interest has, has been for many years, uh, how do we enable people to work uh, systemically, experimentally and collaboratively? And this is not at all straightforward. The word collaboration in English has two opposite meanings. The ordinary meaning is simply to work together with others, but the the other meaning, which is equally important, it means to betray, like to be a collaborator in the Second World War. And I think that these two senses of the word are not accidental or, or um, by the way, this is the, the, the inherent tension in all collaboration. How do, I think I need to work with those other people, uh, whether I want to or not, I, I can't get where I want to go without collaborating, but I'm worried that I will have to betray uh, what's most important to me. And so the bottom line, uh, at least from my thought about this work, is the world needs more and better collaboration, whether that's in communities or countries or globally. We're seeing this 
very dramatically uh, these days around COVID and around climate change. And therefore, the world needs more and better facilitation. And I'm trying to redefine the notion of facilitator, not being uh, the person who stands at the front of the room or in the middle of the Zoom screen with a flip chart, but anybody who helps uh, groups collaborate in order to effect change. So uh, this book is offering a new and general theory and practice of facilitation. It's an approach to facilitation that doesn't involve forcing people to do things or getting people to do things at all. It involves enabling people to move forward together, uh, or as Francisco said, removing the obstacles to them moving forward together. And in fact, the phrase moving forward together, those three words uh, mean respectively employing uh, power, justice, and love. So there you go. Saved yourself 11 pounds, 95 cents. Uh, that's the summary of the book. Thank you so much, Adam, for that overview. Now, you did reference this, but I just want to firstly take a moment to recognize the huge depth and breadth of grounded practice that has informed this work. Um, you particularly shared that story of the work you've been doing in, um, in Colombia over many years. Uh, but the framework for transformative facilitation that you unpack in the book actually draws on learning from an amazing array of, of different contexts. Um, and the stories and the examples that you share, which underpin the approach um, and that you use to bring it to life, span your whole career from those collaborations in the very early 90s that you mentioned to ones which are live and ongoing today. And then from your own experience of marriage and situations within your organisation, Rios, through to these multi-year global system-wide collaborations. So personally, I found it uh, quite remarkable to just reflect on the depth of practical experience that's informed this book and to see how you continually learn from past experience in new ways as your practice develops. Uh, and another thing that I, I really appreciated about this book was the way in which you reflect on and share the legacy and the lineage of this work on transformative facilitation. Uh, both within the wider systems change field and within your own practice and, and developmental journey. And this is something that, um, that Ed Schein talks about in his excellent foreword as well. So that kind of brings me on to my, my first question. You've just described power and love and justice for us. I'm going to take a quote from the book now. So in the book, you say they are the fundamental drives that manifest as contribution, connection and equity. So facilitation that does not employ all three drives cannot enable transformation. But this book builds on your, your previous work where you really unpacked those drives of power and love in complex collaborations. And you do write in the book about how you realize that justice was missing. So I wonder if you could just share a bit more about that. What opened your eyes to that missing piece and why have you brought justice in at this particular moment in time? So the point you made about the book being based on experience to me is important. Um, I 
I um, have written a number of books and I like writing books, but uh, all of my books are reflection on experience. And I guess to put it more strongly, uh, reflections on, uh, on trial and error. Uh, so if you've been doing one thing uh, all day, every day for 30 years, you have lots of opportunity for trial and lots of opportunity for error and lots of opportunity for learning. So um, I have developed the theory uh, in the way you're alluding to, but, uh, but in a particular way, which is not just by thinking about it, but by I have an idea about how things work and I, I act from that understanding and sometimes or even often they don't work as I expect. And so uh, something doesn't go as I expect, either in a minor way or, <laughs> or a catastrophic way. Uh, and I uh, fall down and pick myself up, brush myself off and, and ask myself, what's, what did I miss here? And so, yes, uh, to summarize uh, uh, the 30 years of theory building, I guess the part of this that was clearest to me early on was love or connection, or I, I rely on the definitions of, uh, of Paul Tillich, uh, who defines love as the drive towards the unity of the separated. And that's where I started because when you're bringing together actors from across the system who have uh, not work together or who don't agree with or like or trust each other, a system that is fragmented and, and polarized or, uh, or worse, um, then that act of uh, uniting the separated is using this particular definition, an act of love. So that was the part of it was clearest to me. And the, um, I had many experiences early on of how amazing and joyful uh, it was if you could organize uh, or facilitate for uh, actors to work together uh, in that way. Again, you're not getting them to work together, you're enabling them to work together. But um, I realized after a while that this was only part of the story uh, and it was uh, Martin Luther King who building on Tillich's work uh, made this statement that I found very intriguing that power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. And I became concerned about the risk that facilitation work would be sentimental and anemic <clears throat> that would allow people to work together, but in a way that didn't uh, fully employ their power, where power in this case means the drive of everything living to realize itself. And so, yes, in an earlier book, I talked about this work requiring not only love, but also power to avoid being sentimental and anemic on the one hand, or reckless and abusive on the other hand. So that, I, that um, is a, uh, a formulation that I, I still think is um, uh, correct or useful and, uh, and important. But yes, I always wondered what about, it always, I always had the feeling that something was missing here. Um, and I thought it had something to do with justice, but I didn't really understand uh, what it had to do with justice. And so, uh, yes, in this 
book, I brought in the element of justice because uh, justice is the form or the structure of the work, whether it's the work in the team or the work in the larger system, the form that uh, prevents one person's power from extinguish extinguishing the power of another. So uh, in a facilitation, this means uh, not having some people's expression of their self-realization or their ambition or their uh, agenda or their power uh, silence others. Um, so that's the ordinary equity part in a workshop. And in a larger system, I think the simplest way to understand it is what is injustice looks like look like it looks like one person kneeling on the neck of another person so that they're using their power literally to extinguish the power of the other and so what i realized is that if facilitation doesn't pay attention to a form and a direction that uh, enables everybody's contribution and connection to be realized it uh, it can't really create forward movement. And I guess the last thing I'll say about this is I realized that in a certain way, just like everybody or almost everybody comes to these collaborative activities, uh, wanting to exercise love, wanting to exercise power. I also think it's true that almost everybody comes wanting to exercise justice that they all have an idea that th things are not fair in some way. I'm not saying they all think about it the same way. Usually they think I'm being treated unfairly. Almost everybody thinks in one way or another they're being treated unfairly. So it takes, it's not straightforward to unpack uh, the different versions of justice that people have in mind. But this idea that the situation is not um, going as it should, and that there's an unfairness or an inequity in the situation. And that's one of the main drives for coming together. That's the third drive that can be enabled by uh, transformative facilitation. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really, really helpful to unpack what what you <laughs> um, in your work um, specifically mean by these terms, and also where they have where they have come from. Drawing on that work of of Tillich and Martin Luther King. Um, so at the heart of this book is this approach, which um, there's a brilliant map at the back of the book that outlines all of this in one coherent framework. And it sort of comprises a set of five questions that need to be worked through in any complex collaboration and a whole combination of inner shifts and outer moves that we can use as and when needed to create these conditions for breakthrough by, as you say, removing the barriers to collaboration and contribution and equity. Um, but I was talking recently, actually, to, to one of my mentors, Graham Lester from the International Futures Forum, about ways of distilling and sharing learning. And actually, off the back of a conversation he had with you, we were talking about how all action is 
specific and contextual. But as you build this practice and body of work, you can start to generalize from the specifics and distill principles and qualities that others can then learn from. And yeah, I think we've, we've seen in, in your work to date, you have a real gift for this. Um, but I've also noticed that you're very clear in this book that the approach is flexible and dynamic. It is not a recipe or a method or a pres prescription. Um, and I wonder if you could just share a little bit more about that. And perhaps one of the, you use a lot of great metaphors in the book as well to illustrate this. Um, I think that'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about. Yeah. So, uh, yes, in the book I've, I offer, um, yeah, what I say is an, a new uh, and general theory and practice of facilitation and I did enjoy working it out very precisely. It's, um, uh, I just like that kind of, um, that kind of work. Uh, I studied physics uh, as an undergraduate at McGill and I uh, was remembering the other day, I had a girlfriend at the time who worked as a bartender at a, Polyn a, a Polynesian bar in a, shopping mall in Montreal and I remember going uh, to wait for her to get off work um, uh, trying to work out these physics proofs uh, sitting at the bar. So this is a, an updated version of that same kind of activity. <laughs> I didn't do it at a Polynesian bar but yes trying yeah in as precise a way as I could to distill what is the uh, not just what is the principle of removing obstacles the expression of history, but what exactly does it involve? And uh, so let me take a minute to try to explain that because this now goes uh, uh, into more detail. So the, there's, um, there's two uh, preliminary steps, and then I'll get to the 10 moves that you uh, referred to and the five shifts. The, the first step is, uh, what I realize is there's, there are two uh, common ways of facilitating. Most facilitators I know uh, use either one or the other or favor either one or the other. One way I call the vertical way of facilitating, which to make a long story short, um, prioritizes the whole over the parts. And it's <clears throat> it's when the facilitator says, uh, let's leave our individual agendas at the door. Let's focus on the good of the whole here, whether that's the organization or the department or the community or the system as a whole. And, and that's the, the most common way of facilitating. <clears throat> it's hierarchical in that it prioritizes the whole over the parts and the higher over the lower. Uh, that's how I learned to facilitate. I think probably... Um, most facilitation texts uh, implicitly uh, focus on the vertical approach. The other approach, which is also very common, is the opposite. It says, no, 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 this hierarchy is, is, uh, is going to be oppressive or repressive. And what's needed is actually to prioritize the individual, uh, the equality of each member of the group. Um, and the needs and ideas and ultimately the free choice 
of each member of the group. And I argue, to make a long story short, that using either the vertical or the horizontal uh, produces very limited results and doesn't enable uh, uh, the transformation uh, of a system or, or a transformation of a problematic situation. And so uh, this is, I think, a classic polarity, a polarity in the sense of Barry Johnson, uh, that it's uh, two imperatives, but you can't choose between them. It's exactly like a breathing in and breathing out. Nobody has arguments about is it better to breathe in or breathe out. We need to do them both, not at the same time, alternately. And so what I call transformative facilitation involves both vertical facilitation and horizontal facilitation, not at the same time, but alternately. If you want a metaphor, one of the metaphors I give in the book is sailing a small boat. I grew up sailing a, a, a laser. Uh, and the fun thing about sailing a laser is, uh, or the, the, all the dramatic pictures of small boat sailing are when you're trying to go upwind and you can't go straight upwind. It's not possible. You have to first go in one direction, starboard, then port, then starboard, then port. You have to keep turning the boat in order to move, in order to get where you're trying to go. And so that's what you have to do. You have to do um, vertical, horizontal, 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 vertical, vertical, horizontal. Okay. So that's the first part of the framework. The second part of the framework you alluded to is that there's five questions that you that a group or a facilitator have to deal with over and over, not once, but over and over. Um, how do we see our situation? How do we define success? How do we get from here to there? How do we decide who does what? And how do we understand our role? So this is now where the sitting at the bar in the Contiki uh, uh, comes <laughs> comes into it. Uh, so that's five times two. There's 10 moves you need to make. So in a way, this is the simple part. There's only 10 moves. It's like a vocabulary that only has uh, a 10 words or a recipe that only has 10 ingredients. There's 10 moves you have to make as a facilitator. Uh, um, uh, opening and advocating, discerning and sorry, inquiring and advocating, advancing and concluding, discerning and mapping, accompanying and directing, and standing inside and standing outside. All you have to do is those 10 things. But now here's the hard part. The hard part is there's no way to know which move you have to obey next, except by paying attention. It's like a recipe where it doesn't tell you in what order or how much or when to use this, each ingredient. You have to use all 10, not all at the same time, but when they're needed. But the trick is, or the, the part that's not easy is, the only way to know which move to make next, which ingredient to use next, which word of this 10 word vocabulary to use next is by paying attention. And in particular, paying attention to what's going on in the specific situation, in the specific group, in yourself, moment to moment. Um, and that's what I, so there's the, the 10 outer moves, five times two, and the five inner shifts, which are five versions of paying attention, uh, opening, discerning, adapting, serving, and partnering. So that's it. It's as simple as that.
Thank you. Um, actually, I'd love to dive into paying attention and learning, which are two big things you've spoken about already. Um, I think, you know, one of the biggest things for me in all of your work, including this book, is this focus on um, being attentive, which enables this adaptive learning from failures and mistakes. Um, and that's something I think about a lot in my own work as well. And you're refreshingly candid, I would say, about some of your own pain and growth through failures. Um, so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that. Firstly, I am curious how you actually embed feedback loops and action learning in an ongoing way in the delivery of your work, particularly when there is this, or often this tension between action and reflection. How do you legitimize and bake in the spaces and the mechanisms for learning? So it's a good question because many people especially many uh, professionals or facilitators uh, who are who fancy themselves to be experts and are being uh, employed or paid for their expertise uh, um, are supposed to know what they're doing and aren't supposed to fail and uh, you know, I don't think anybody likes to fail. I certainly don't. I fail pretty often in one way or another. And uh, sometimes it's hard to disentangle uh, um, having a failure from being a failure. So, it, it, you know, I, I think for many of us, it, 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 cut, it cuts pretty deep. And and groups or clients, uh, uh, you know, will have a, a a more or less tolerance for facilitators trying something that doesn't work. So for me, this this principle that it is impossible to know in advance what will work is crucial and, and uh, not widely understood. Um, but if we know this and we, uh, and we accept that we'll do our best, we'll be well prepared, we'll be well rested, we'll rehearse, uh, we'll try it, then all that's required is, as you say, to build in or schedule the after action review. I think that's a, an expression that originates with a particularly disciplined process. I think it's in the US Army, at least that's where I first heard this expression after action review. But how can we make it not a exceptional, but a routine part of our work that after we have tried something, whether it's after a module or at the end of a day or at the end of a phase or at the end of the year, uh, we're going to say, okay, we tried that. Now, what went well that we want to keep doing and what do we need to do better next time? This is, you know, a very old method. Uh, um, goes by the name of plus delta. Um, by the way, when we say, what do we do? want to do differently next time? 
That doesn't mean how are we going to do this again? Because we almost never have a chance for a do-over. Facilitation is a live performance, but we will have an opportunity to do to try again tomorrow or next week or in the next project. And uh, how can we, within a facilitation team and between a facilitation team uh, and a group or between a facilitation team and a client, build in this, this routine of plus delta? You know, most of the time, the deltas are, you know, pretty obvious and uh, and we all agree on them. Sometime they'll be very contentious. No, I think this happened. No, I think that happened. You really screwed up. No, you really screwed up. So it's not always easy. Uh, but if we understand that, yeah, we'll do the best we can and we'll, you know, as I sometimes say, we'll catch it in the, we'll do the best we can and then we'll catch it in the debrief and we'll try again the next time. So I'm not saying that this is easy. Uh, I find it, <laughs> I actually find it sometimes or often quite painful. I don't like making mistakes. I don't like people thinking I've made mistakes, uh, but there really isn't any other way, uh, unfortunately, or anyhow, I don't think there's any other way. So catch it in the debrief. Yeah, and bake it in as a ritual and a continual rhythm. Um, thank you. Um, so going back to, to paying attention and cultivating this capacity um, at an individual layer as well as at the facilitation team layer to, to notice and fluidly respond to the dynamics that are at play and um, and, and therefore how you can react and respond to those in, in the moment um, is really at the core of this book. I think you mentioned working with Bill O'Brien, there's that great quote from him that I know the Presencing Institute use a lot that the success of the intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. So I would be really intrigued to know in terms of your personal craft, like what inner work do you do? Are there any particular rituals or practices that, that you have developed that have improved your ability to do this work, to cultivate that interior condition that you need to, to show up in the best possible way? Uh, so I uh, worked with Bill O'Brien. <clears throat> he was my business partner for a while. He was uh, by then uh, the retired uh, had retired as president of a innovative insurance company in Massachusetts called Hanover Insurance. He's now deceased. Um, and the, the thing I want to say about Bill, which is relevant to your question, is uh, he was concerned about the interior condition, and he did make that statement, which many people have quoted. But he didn't mean anything esoteric at all by this. And in fact, he used to argue quite vehemently that there was a danger in consultants or facilitators talking about very highfalutin um, approaches uh, when actually what he thought people needed was pretty simple things. 
so I'm going to give you my simple answer in a okay. second. Uh, Bill's, Bill's favorite author, or one of his favorite authors was C.S. Lewis, partly because Bill was a very devout Christian, but he really admired Lewis's capacity to take very complicated things and say them in super sim simple ways. And he used to uh, encourage me to read C.S. Lewis and Bill himself, when he wrote and spoke, always tried to bring it down to the basics. So what I wanna say about the interior condition of the intervener is it's actually something I think or I think of, or in my practice is something much simpler than most people make it out to be. So, so to me, it, uh, it, it simply means uh, being relaxed, being present, having had a good night's sleep, trying not to be too distracted uh, or worried so that you can pay attention to what's really going on. Um, all the times I screw up uh, has to do with being tired or being distracted or having a mind, my mind on something else that I'm supposed to be doing or being frightened uh, or nervous or for some reason or another or reactive to what's going on in the group. Uh, so the most frequent thing I say to myself and to my facilitation colleagues is, uh, can we please get this other stuff out of the way? Can we turn off our phones? Can we finish our other tasks? Can we relax a little bit? Uh, can we prepare well so that we can relax and pay attention to what's going on right now? And so, yes, Bill used to insist on having a half an hour before he and I would go into a meeting or a workshop or an interview because he wanted to clear his head and he had some, some way of doing that. I'm, don't know exactly what it was, but the main important, the main thing is clear your head so that you can pay attention to what's going on. And it, it doesn't involve anything more esoteric, I think, than that. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming back with such a, uh, a clear and accessible response that really it's just about that deep preparation that then enables uh, deep presence in the moment, in the act of facilitating. Yeah. So another example I give in the book was from one of my most important and first facilitation teachers, which is a South African facilitator named Louis van der Merwe. And I worked with him a lot in the first years after I moved to South Africa. And we used to do this one kind of workshop over and over. And Louis would always insist that the night before we, uh, get in our hotel room or our the meeting room and we'd write out all our flip charts and it, we were doing the same kind of workshop over and over and I once asked Louis why why don't we just write them out once and have them laminated and carry them around from workshop to workshop and he gave me what I thought was a very important lesson he said no Adam I want us to rehearse the night before rehearse in our minds by writing these out you know with um, felt tip pens on flip chart paper uh, that's the act of rehearsal so that when the workshop comes, we've finished that and we can pay attention to what's going on uh, and adjust or discard this if we need to. So that's a very practical version of the same principle. Yeah. Yeah. And actually this notion of the preparation and the follow-up work of facilitators I think is a really 
important one, actually. <laughs> um, so something I have experienced a lot is people, you know, mistakenly thinking of facilitation as the thing that happens when you bring stakeholders together in a, a workshop, a meeting or a, another type of gathering. And you talk about this in the book and are very clear that this is not the case. In fact, it starts the moment that you start engaging and convening your stakeholders. Right. So I wonder if you could just briefly share um, a little bit more about some of the things that you have done or can do in facilitation work to remove obstacles to equitable contribution and connection throughout a process. So the before and the after, as well as yeah. the during people yeah. coming together. So this became clear to me. Um, my colleagues and I did a project that I'm very proud of uh, in 2012, 2013, uh, related to policy around illegal drugs in the Americas that involved a stakeholder group from all of the Americas, from Canada to Chile, um, uh, military people and NGO people and government people and health people. Um, and that particular project, which had uh, quite a big influence on drug policy in the Americas and, and globally, involved two workshops of three days. But I worked on it all day, every day for 12 months. So that's what, that's what uh, showed me that, no, there's lots of work. Uh, and to imagine facilitate. So I'm trying to enlarge the definition of facilitation. I'll come back to answer your question in a second. But I'm trying to enlarge the definition of facilitation both over time. It doesn't just mean the time <clears throat> spent with the group. It may mean 10 times more time before, during, uh, sorry, before, in between, and after. Uh, but I'm also trying to enlarge the definition of a facilitator from being something that a, that a professional does, a professional facilitator does, to something that anybody can do, or more likely a team of people can do, anybody who's involved in, in helping uh, people collaborate to affect change in a problematic situation. But, uh, but, what, but more specifically, what this involves is everything from uh, working with the, the, the people who believe the situ their situation is problematic and want to change it and want to work with others to change it and aren't necessarily sure who else they need to work with or are able to work with. So how do they convene others? How do we frame the purpose of the work, how do we enroll the participants in a collaboration in a way that they feel uh, heard and respected and that their perspe perspective on what is it in the situation that is problematic is taken on board. Um, uh, so all of that um, is not only, uh, is crucial, uh, for several reasons. Firstly, it's chronologically the first thing that needs to be done, but also uh, it's the part that's least formed when there isn't yet a group or a project or a process. All of that has to be figured out uh, simultaneously in the days or weeks or often months 
uh, leading up to the first time the group is together. <clears throat> and COVID has, of course, in some ways been uh, um, a very disruptive time uh, for those of us who work with groups because groups have not been able to meet um, in person. Uh, but in other ways, it's been very instructive, uh, in particular, uh, making it clear how we need a rhythm between meeting together in person, meeting together virtually, and working asynchronously, um, and maybe from different places uh, to do this work. And so, yes, uh, I think it's a a big error to think that facilitation is about standing in the front of the room. You know, in French, the word for facilitator is animateur, which has this connotation because that's the same word it's used for club med hosts on the beach, the gentil animateur. So it's not just that funny person at the front of the room, you know, doing icebreakers or whatever, but it's every, it's, it's the, it's all of the work done by all of the different people who are involved in, supporting or or helping or coaching or enabling uh, people to to move forward together yeah thank you for uh, expanding our, our notion on both fronts the scope and the, the the range of people involved um i don't think we have time to go into this now but another thing i thought was so interesting which people will have to read the book to find out more about is um, some of your reflections on the transformative facilitation that needs to be living and breathing within those diverse groups of pe people who are facilitators <laughs> working as part uh, of a team as well, who themselves are often a fractal of the wider challenge that they are collaborating towards. Um, but sadly, we are nearly out of time. So I am going to have to um, choose just one or two last questions to ask you. Um, I do want to ask you one question on the process of writing this book, because yeah, you talk about transformative facilitation as an unconventional approach. But I was actually talking to a, a friend, Sean Andrews, uh, the other day, who was involved in the feedback process for writing this book, which was also itself unconventional, I would say. Um, he was talking about how you reached out beyond immediate colleagues to a much wider network and, and asked people if they wanted to collaborate on sharing feedback. And yeah, I don't think it's uncommon to reach out to lots of people for or key people for feedback on a book. But I think the way that you tapped into this larger field and sort of collective intelligence was quite a brave and unconventional thing to do, um, particularly as it was not just one way feedback. This was actually inviting a dialogue between the people who were who were commenting on the book. And I just wonder, how as an author, did you find that process? And how on earth did you wade through all of that, make yeah. sense of the, <laughs> the feedback and make decisions with how to use it? Yeah. So um, I really like writing. Um, and uh, um, writing is my main personal experience of the creative act. And for me, the, the crucial part uh, is that uh, you make a draft, 
where you have an idea and you put it down on paper and you look at it and you see, oh no, this isn't quite right or this isn't clear. And then you rewrite it. And so for me, the process of writing is the process of rewriting. I mean, many people have said that, but probably I rewrote every chapter of this book literally a hundred times. Um, so yes, what I did with this book and my previous book, Collaborating with the Enemy, is I invited anybody who wanted to comment on the drafts. And with this book, Facilitating Breakthrough, 207 people signed up. And I, I, don't know, I can't remember, four or five times shared a Google Doc with them and invited their feedback. So um, I don't want to exaggerate this as a collaboration because I had the final say about everything. So I guess, strictly speaking, it was more of a consultation than a collaboration. Uh, but uh, many people uh, gave um, many useful comments. Uh, there must have been, I don't know, 30 or 40 people that commented on every draft at length and enabled me to, to see that this thing was unclear or this didn't make sense or this was repetitive or I wasn't at all making my point correctly. And so I found it really helpful and not difficult at all um, um, and a real gift to me, the, the writer, uh, that so many people were willing to comment on somebody else's uh, somebody else's book. So that that in a way was pretty straightforward. It's just like I said half an hour ago about failure. Of course, it's a little embarrassing when you look back at the first draft about how shitty it was and and this willingness to put something out there knowing that it's not good because the only way to make it good is to get feedback. There really isn't, I, I could sit and stare at it forever, which of course I did, but I can't, I can usually only see half of the things that need to change. So that's the, you know, that goes back to this experimental part. Now here's what I, uh, I we had last week, uh, uh, sort of a party for those collaborators. And I realized something that I hadn't realized at the time, which I think is the more important point which is this wasn't a, a true co-creation, but I think what it really showed is that everybody, at least those 207 people, all wanted contribution, connection, and equity. That's the more interesting, or that's the thing that's more related to the book. They, they were happy to contribute. They enjoyed it, I think. They wanted. They were happy to connect to each other. It was they connected in the Google Doc and then in the Zoom meeting we had last week. They were seemed to be happy to be in the same room, virtual room, for the first time in that year and a half. And I was pretty attentive to equity that I that everybody could have their say, and the rules were pretty clear. The main rule being, I'm going to make all the final decisions, but I wasn't discriminating against people. It wasn't a co-authored book. And I was going to acknowledge every single person in the back of the book, et cetera. So I think that's actually the bigger connection to the book is I was enabling contribution, connection, and equity by the structure of the consultative process I, I used. And it worked well. The book's much better than it would have been had I not done that. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Right. I'm going to slip in two Last questions, but we're going to have to keep the answers really brief. <laughs> um, so um, 
one is um, about learning through play and through creative facilitation practice. And you actually share some of the particular exercises and, and techniques that, 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 that you've used in the book. Um, some of which I've also used and have found to be yeah, really, really amazing. I wonder if you could just briefly share any quick thoughts on the value yeah. of play as a mindset and potentially a design principle in transformative Yeah, so here I've been very influenced by my colleague Ian Prinsloo, who uh, you know also, who's a former theatre director. I used to not like play very much. I'm a, sort of a dour uh, person, um, and I thought that wasn't really serious enough. But um, Ian has convinced me and has shown me that um, uh, that uh, play is a crucial way to reduce um, uh, to enable relaxation and reduce hierarchy and formality, uh, which are impediments to 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 co-creative work. So I now see it as a crucial design principle. Brilliant. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, and then my last question is, um, I noticed that, uh, and you said this uh, uh, in your opening reflections and your overview, that the essence of transformative facilitation started to emerge in 2017. And that is actually the, around the time that you published your last book, Collaborating with um, the Enemy. So what's emerging for you now? What's next on the horizon? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I just finished this, so I'm certainly not thinking of the next book, although I was joking with, uh, with my wife, Dorothy, this morning that maybe I should write a follow-up, Collaborating with the Enemy at Home, Collaborating with the Enemy at Work. <laughs> that's that's a joke. That's not really serious. Um, no, I I'm uh, yeah. I, I've written a lot in my life. Um, these five books, and before that, I used to write journal articles. Uh, um, and for me, write uh, the finishing of a text has always been the end of a chapter in my life, and the beginning of a new chapter. But I never know what that new chapter is. So. I guess the only thing I'd say is that uh, I know this is the beginning of a new chapter and I am um, waiting uh, um, in a relaxed and open way for what that might be. Thank you. Well, on that note, um, although I could definitely keep talking to you all day, I am afraid that's all we've got time for. Adam, thank you so much for talking to me and sharing some of the wisdom and, and learning and process that's gone into this new general theory and practice of transformative facilitation that can be found in the book. I have no doubt that it will be really illuminating to everyone watching um, who wants to enable the breakthrough that, that, that this can facilitate. And speaking personally, this approach has already genuinely made a difference to my own facilitation practice because reading the book enabled me to reflect on processes and situations I've been involved in as a facilitator in the past in new ways. So distilling new learning from those experiences, but also in the pretty short time since I got my copy of the book, I'm already noticing that I'm considering and applying the drives and moves and shifts that you share to 
collaborations that I'm involved in, in now, so thank you. And to those of you watching, I really encourage you to get hold of a, a copy of the book, Facilitating Breakthrough. You can find details of how to do that here in the sidebar chat and on RSA events social media. Please do stay tuned to the RSA's channels for more events like these and updates on our social change work. You can hit subscribe here on our YouTube and visit the RSA website to find out what we're up to and how you can get involved. All that's left for me to say is thank you once again to Adam Kahane and thank you all for watching. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.